Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom. Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law is our host. And Colonel, it looks like as we're making our way through the uh, constitutional amendments, we have at long last arrived at the 18th Amendment. This is one for the history books, isn't it? Well, it's sort of for the history books, and yet it's also still quite relevant, really, because issues concerning marijuana are certainly current today, and issues concerning alcohol are certainly current today. And even though prohibition was officially repealed with the 21st Amendment, nevertheless, states still retain the authority to regulate alcohol and it certainly is an ongoing problem in our society today. So why don't we begin by just looking at the 18th Amendment itself, which begins by saying that after one year from the ratification of this article, the article was ratified in 1919, and so one year later, 1920, the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors within the importation thereof into or the exportation thereof from the United States and all territory subject to the jurisdiction thereof for beverages purposes is hereby prohibited. In other words, a prohibition on drinking alcohol. Now, there have been movements for prohibition well before the war between the states, but there was also a lot of resistance to that at the time as well. And as we move into the later 1800s, we find a stronger drive, partly because in so many areas, alcohol seemed to be becoming a more major problem than it had appeared before. And possibly the saloon days of the Wild West contributes to that a little bit. We have organizations, primarily of women, during this period of time, the late 1800s and early 1900s, one called the Anti-Saloon League, another called the WCTU, or the Women's Christian Temperance Union. A number of churches were very strongly opposed to alcohol, and some were less so. And so this was considered to be a progressive reform that would free Americans from many of the problems associated with alcohol, poverty, divorce, crime, and so many other issues like that. And anyway, a couple other things make this possible. One of them, and frankly, I have to admit, Brian, I don't fully understand how this works. But with World War I, I am told that alcohol had a role in the production of ammunition. Exactly how alcohol was used in the production of ammunition, I'm not sure. Maybe you know, or maybe one of our listeners does. But that was one of the reasons for prohibition, alcohol was needed for the war effort for producing ammunition. Also, a few other things were going on. Business leaders were strongly in support of prohibition because they thought it would lead to a more responsible workforce. And the 16th Amendment, remember the amendment that provided for the income tax, that has a very direct role in the adoption of the 18th Amendment prohibition. Let me ask, can you guess why? 
uh, because uh, I think it was enforced by revenue agents, was it not? Well, that's in part true. It's enforced by revenue agents, but there's another factor too, and that's that we were very much dependent upon a liquor tax in order to support our government. Now with the 16th Amendment and the federal income tax, we no longer have as great a need as we used to have for the liquor taxes, and so we can do without them, and therefore we can prohibit alcohol. And another factor, too, was that German Americans tended to be more inclined toward alcohol use and alcohol production. And with World War I, there was a strong anti-German sentiment, and this was a way of getting back at the Germans and Germany, and I'm half German myself, so I don't mean to, I hope you aren't thinking I'm putting (laughs) any suggestion here of anti-German prejudice on my part. But at any rate, with all of this in mind, the amendment goes to Congress. Now, there's another factor that has a role in this, too, and that is the 17th Amendment. We talked about the 17th Amendment, I believe that was last week. And again, what did the 17th Amendment provide for? That was uh, providing for direct election of senators to the U.S. Direct election of senators. Prior to that, of course, senators were chosen by the state legislatures. And the movement for prohibition was stronger among the people as a whole than it was in the state legislatures. And in fact, the state legislatures were a little concerned about this because it would lead to federal regulation of an area that many of them thought should be within their own province. And so now that senators are popularly elected, they're more responsive to the popular will rather than to the will of the state legislature. And that's where most of the support was for, for prohibition was coming from, the popular sentiment rather than the public as a whole. With all that in mind, it is adopted, the 18th Amendment, in 1918, and states quickly proceed to ratification. And by 1919, the necessary three-fourths of the states had ratified the Prohibition Amendment, and it became law, and alcohol was prohibited. Now, one thing that led to a problem with the amendment was Section 2. And Section 2 of the Prohibition Amendment said that the Congress and the several states shall have concurrent power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. So enforcement of this, it isn't strictly up to Congress, it isn't strictly up to the states, it's up to both. But that then leads to a question as to Well, which takes precedence, federal regulations or state regulations? And this came to the courts for resolution, and the courts determined, based on the supremacy clause of Article 6, Section 2, and on several previous decisions, like the case involving the National Bank from from 1819, that federal law would take precedence over state law on this, And that led to, many times, states being unwilling to assist. For one thing, the Congress had the recommendation of President Woodrow Wilson passed a law that provided that the law would apply to all alcoholic beverages that had a alcohol content of over 0.05. That would prohibit even beer, for example. 
this led to a lot of opposition, probably made it more difficult to enforce. Another factor here that we find interesting about this is that a lot of soldiers coming back from World War One, they had left this country to go fight at a time when alcohol was legal. They come back and find that they can't even have beer, and a lot of soldiers are rather upset about this and a little reluctant to accept this amendment. One of the results of this was that we had a lot of bootlegging, that is the illegal importation of alcohol, quite a black market, and it seemed like alcoholic beverages were very readily available, even though they were illegal. And anyway, so prohibition seemed like it kind of became a joke. And as a result, that is going to lead to the 21st Amendment, which we're going to see after the break, the 21st Amendment, which has the effect of repealing the 18th Amendment. But, well, today we usually look at the 18th Amendment as a, kind of an exercise in futility and a movement that may have had good motives but was very impractical and was for no other purpose than trying to regulate other people's lives. I think we need to consider what the effect of alcohol have been. The effects on families causing divorce and child abuse and spouse abuse and so many other things like this, the effect on motor vehicle accidents, the effect on non-support in families, the effect on worker absenteeism on the job and as a result unemployment and the like and decreased productivity and the relation between alcohol and crime because alcohol causes people to impair their judgment and lose control of their impulses and Many crimes are committed under the influence of alcohol, and this was a very genuine problem at that time, and it was an attempt to deal with that problem. Whether it was a good attempt or not, we'll talk about that a little more in the next section. But okay. Sounds good. This is a good jumping-off point right now for our discussion of the 18th Amendment. Again, you're listening to Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. Are you tired of high cable TV rates? Sign up for Dish today and get a $500 bonus offer while supplies last. Plus, lock in your price for two years guaranteed. Call All-American Dish, your Dish-authorized retailer now. 800-610-5739. 800-610-5739. That's 800-610-5739. Offers require credit qualification, 24-month commitment, early termination fee, and auto pay. Restrictions apply. Call for details. Trade pros. Whether you specialize in service or new construction, Ferguson knows firsthand how much work goes into a long day on the job, which is why we're committed to offering the products and solutions to get every job done right. With over a 1,000 locations, an unmatched selection of specialty products, tools, and supplies, our pro pickup and same or next day delivery, you can trust that doing business with Ferguson will be the easiest part of your hard day's work. Visit ferguson.com to find a counter location near you. 
Gold prices keep climbing and just hit an all-time high. COVID-19 and battered global economies are sending investors to the safe haven of physical gold to avoid losing value in their IRAs, 401ks, and stocks. Don't stand on the sidelines and wonder what the stock market is going to do next. Protect and grow your financial future today with a call to American Bullion, the leader in gold investments. You have valid concerns, and we have simple solutions for all needs and budgets. In fact, we specialize in first-time gold buyers as well as veterans. Find out about American Bullion's hassle-free process to transfer any portion of your IRA, 401k, or stocks into the long-term safety of a gold IRA today. Call 800-GOLD-IRA and ask for our free gold guide. That's 800-465-3472. 800-GOLD-IRA. Grow your financial future with the rising value of physical gold and protect yourself during this worldwide crisis. Call the leader, American Bullion. 800-GOLD-IRA. If your credit card bills have gotten out of hand and you care about your credit, call Consolidated Credit now. If the interest rates on your credit cards are so high, it'll take years to get out of debt. Call Consolidated Credit now. They've helped over 6 million people with credit card debt. Without destroying your credit, they can consolidate your debts into one lower payment, reduce your interest rates, and get you out of debt fast. The program works. Call Consolidated Credit now. Call 800 406 800 406 60046. That's 800 406 Consolidated Credit Counseling Services, Inc. 5701 West Sunrise Boulevard, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, 33313. Licensed by the New York Department of Financial Services and by the Vermont Department of Financial Regulation. Maryland DM 1492. Oregon DM 80092. Licensed by the Virginia State Corporation. Commission license number DC 83. Service may adversely affect an individual's credit. Non-payment of debt may lead to additional finance charges or collections activity, including legal action. Not a loan company. Once again, we welcome you back to Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo, your host. We are talking about the 18th Amendment, Prohibition. And Colonel, you were mentioning as we went to break, it was very likely well-intentioned. There are some definite downsides to, uh, you know, the availability and use of, of alcohol. Um, unfortunately, Prohibition did not, uh, did not prove to be a, a successful uh, means of, of dealing with some of those downsides, did it? Well, there were certainly problems in prohibition. Now, again, I would love to see some statistics of the extent to which it actually did decrease the consumption of alcohol. And also, we have no way of knowing how much alcohol consumption would have been increased during that same period of time, 1920 to 1933, if prohibition had not gone into effect. In other words, it might have slowed down the drive toward alcohol abuse and I guess we'll never be able to know the answer to that entirely. But we say it was unenforceable, but sometimes we have a tendency to pass a law and then not bother to enforce it and then say it was unenforceable and therefore repeal it when, in fact, we really didn't try to enforce it. Was this really unenforceable or was it just unenforced? Also, it may be that one of the reasons that it was not enforced as well as it could have been, was that, as we mentioned earlier, it had been applied very strictly to everything of 0.05 and above, which included beer, wine, and things like that. And if instead they had defined it to include only hard liquor and not some of the more soft products like that, it might have been more enforceable then. 
But anyway, there certainly was a lack of enforcement. And partly as a result of that, we saw a drive to repeal it. And that drive to repeal it came with the 21st Amendment, which was ratified in 1933, which simply begins in Section 1 by saying that the 18th Article of Amendment to the Constitution of the United States is hereby repealed. And so the 18th Amendment is thereby wiped off the books. However, there is also Section 2. And Section 2 of the repeal prohibition says the transportation or importation into any state, territory, or possession of the United States for delivery or use therein of intoxicating liquors in violation of the laws thereof is hereby prohibited. And I don't expect all of our listeners to remember word for word that I've read. And so I would urge our listeners to have a copy of the Constitution at hand so you can follow along with what you're saying. Basically, what this says is the federal prohibition is hereby prohibited. However, states may continue to prohibit alcohol if they wish. And anyway, this has been generally interpreted to give the states pretty broad authority to prohibit alcohol. In fact, states, many of them, continued to prohibit alcohol many decades after the repeal prohibition went into effect in 1933. Some of the states, perhaps states in which the church had more influence and in which social morality was stricter, many states were very slow about allowing liquor, particularly liquor by the drink, rather than just instead of going to a bar to buy liquor rather than taking it home and so on. And it was said, for example, that and there was perhaps some hypocrisy here, but used to be said in Kansas that Kansas farmers would continue to vote for prohibition just so long as they could stagger to the polls. And yes, there may have been some hypocrisy involved there. I remember when I was growing up, I was growing up in Sioux City, Iowa, which is right on the Iowa-South Dakota border, and Iowa did not allow alcohol at the time. Well, South Dakota did. And I remember right on the banks, just a little bit off the banks of the Big Sioux River, the river that separates South Dakota from Iowa, I used to, we used to see these, these concrete embankments where bootleggers bringing alcohol across the Big Sioux River from South Dakota into Iowa where, where they would store it to be picked up by others. And those aren't there anymore. They were in a state park called Stone Park. But anyway, we, when I'd go out for scout camp and so on, we'd, we'd see those there, but they're not there anymore. But anyway, so as I say, states could continue to regulate alcohol and did so for many years thereafter. And many states, in fact, continue to have certain regulations like prohibiting Sunday sales or various restrictions on driving on the highways and so on, or restrictions on age limits for people who can buy alcohol. And in fact, there was recently a federal effort to deny highway funding to states that refused to raise the legal age for consuming alcohol to 21. And one such law was upheld by the Supreme Court of the 
cases South Dakota versus Dole. But several times we've seen court cases that dealt with an issue whether there is a conflict between the Commerce Clause, the clause that says that the federal government rather than the states can regulate interstate commerce and limits the right of the states to regulate interstate commerce versus this right of the states to regulate alcohol. Well, then how about regulating alcohol that is being sold in interstate commerce? And anyway, for a time, it appeared that the courts were saying that the 21st Amendment just took alcohol and carved it out as an exception to the Commerce Clause, saying states can regulate alcohol as much as they want. They have retreated from that somewhat in the case of Capital Cities versus CRISP and several other cases where they have said that what they're going to do, whether they're going to weigh the federal interest versus the state interest, rather than just saying absolutely the state's been regulate alcohol all at once, even if it's interstate commerce. We had a case in 1996, the 44 Liquor Mart versus Rhode Island, in which the state had a prohibition of liquor advertisement. And the Supreme Court held that this particular Rhode Island law was a violation of First Amendment free speech. The free speech includes certain rights to regulate alcohol. Anyway, so the issue of alcohol certainly hasn't gone away. In fact, it's probably as big an issue today as it has ever been. But as we go from the regulation of alcohol and we look to other drugs, I'd like to focus a little bit at this point on the regulation of cannabis, or as it used to be called when I was young, marijuana. and As we look to this issue, we're seeing such a drive to legalize or decriminalize marijuana today, and that term decriminalize is a term that I don't like because it almost implies legalization. When we say that we're decriminalizing something like marijuana, what we mean is that it'll still be a criminal offense, it'll still be subject to fines, but it will not be a basis for jail or prison. That's usually what we mean by the word decriminalize. And a number of states have legalized marijuana. A number of others have decriminalized it. Others still have left it up to local option within the states. And that continues to be quite a battle today. And there seems to be widespread popular support today for legalizing what they're calling today cannabis. And without a realization that we're talking about something very different than what we were back in the 60s. And we'll look at some of those differences when we come back from the break. I'm anxious to explore this one with you as well, Colonel, because I've, I've watched these efforts. And, and one of the questions that I'd, I'd love to have you address on the other side of the break is uh, what were the laws prior to, say, 1914 in regards to marijuana, um, opium, cocaine, and that kind of thing? So if we can touch on that, I would love to get your take on it. This is Constitution Classroom. We'll be back right after these messages. And we are back 
This is Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. We've been talking about the 18th and 21st Amendments, which are fascinating parts of American history, prohibition, then the repeal of prohibition. And uh, Colonel, you were mentioning that uh, this plays somewhat into uh, the... Uh, legalization and decriminalization of, of marijuana or cannabis in our time. And as we went to break, I was curious about uh, prior to, I believe it was about 1914, my understanding is that uh, the average person could walk in off the street to their neighborhood drugstore and they could obtain um, extracts of cannabis, extracts of opium. They could obtain uh, pharmaceutical grade cocaine without so much as a prescription. And it wasn't until some years after that uh, particularly in the 1930s for marijuana, that uh, these became, uh, you know, controlled substances, that uh, there was a stiff uh, criminal penalty for either the possession or use of them or, or distribution of them. And I'm just wondering if something had changed in that time. There was a time where they were still dangerous things. People get it, could get hooked on opium, but it wasn't a matter of criminal justice or it wasn't the government's business if you chose to ingest one of those substances. That's a very good question, Brian, and some of that earlier history of drug abuse and of efforts to make these drugs like opium, heroin, and others illegal, I really have not studied that background as much as I probably should, and so I'm not going to be able to give you that good an answer, but here's a couple things that come to mind. For one thing, it is during this period that the medical profession is developing many new kinds of drugs to deal with pain and deal with infections and other things like this. So a need for these other things may have diminished. Another reason, though, might be that we begin to discover the relationship between being hooked on these drugs and other ill effects in society that we had not realized before. But at any rate, as we move into the latter half of the 20th century, we see that marijuana is illegal, as far as I know, illegal in all 50 states and illegal under federal law, and similar federal and state laws dealing with some of the harder drugs. But there were, back in the 60s when I was in school, there were certainly many people being arrested for marijuana and, and other forms of drugs. And there was also a drive to legalize these drugs. And the Libertarian Party, a party that I would agree with on a number of things, but the Libertarian Party has always taken a strong stand in favor of the legalization of most kinds of drugs, believing that that should be a matter of individual choice and that a government war on drugs was simply going to be counterproductive. But... Then we find that some of this seemed to go away, but in the last 10 years or so, we have seen an increased drive toward the legalization of cannabis or marijuana, and a number of states have now legalized it. Still others have decriminalized it, that is, removed jail and prison as penalties for possession and use and sale of marijuana. And question is, is this really a good thing or not? And I'm going to suggest that sometimes when we talk about victimless crimes and marijuana use has been touted by many as being a victimless crime, as has legalized, as has gambling, as have 
prostitution, a number of other things like that. These are victimless crimes. Nobody is hurt by them, and therefore the government shouldn't be prohibiting them. Sometimes, though, when we call something a victimless crime, we just haven't looked far enough to find the victims. And sometimes there are victims with these crimes that we didn't realize before. Now, the vice president, who's running for president right now, Joe Biden, has said that he supports decriminalization of cannabis. And Kamala Harris, his vice presidential running mate, who is attorney general of California, was responsible for jailing at least 1,500 blacks for marijuana use or possession. When she was asked once whether she herself had personally used it, she just gave her typical smug laugh, which means I'm not answering that question. It kind of implies you know what the answer is. But Nancy Pelosi, the Senate Majority Leader, or I'm sorry, Speaker of the House, has recently tried to push a bill through the House. It probably won't get through the Senate, but a bill of the House that would prohibit the federal government from enforcing its laws. We have federal laws that prohibit marijuana, but Pelosi would not repeal those laws, but she'd simply pass legislation that prohibits the federal government from enforcing them, which really has about the same effect as allowing them. But anyway, so it seems like the Democrat Party right now is taking a stand in favor of legalization of cannabis or marijuana. As I say, some states have legalized, some states have decriminalized it. However, the federal prohibition is still in effect. And that being the case, even if you live in a state where the state has legalized marijuana, you are still committing a federal offense by using marijuana. Now, something that we don't seem to be considering here is that the cannabis that is in use today is about 10 times more potent than the marijuana that was in use back in the hippie era of the 60s and early 70s. We don't seem to consider today that, according to the National Institute on Drug Abuse, that marijuana use today tends to worsen alcohol and nicotine addiction, that about one half or more of new drug users begin with marijuana and go on to harder drugs, that marijuana addicts are three times more likely than the population as a whole to become addicted to heroin. In other words, it leads to drugs that we know are very dangerous. In addition to that, also find that the use of marijuana tends to debilitate one's mental acuity as well as one's physical ailments. It leads to lung damage, much the way tobacco and nicotine do. It impairs judgment, it impairs motor function. And anyway, so there always have been dangers to marijuana use, and those dangers seem to be much greater today since what is being sold today is far, far more powerful. 
But one of the things that's being touted today is the use of medical marijuana. In other words, the use of this for medical purposes. And there are many who would say that even though maybe we should keep it illegal for just personal use, nevertheless, for medical purposes, it should be allowed. Well, one thing I found interesting on this is that at the law school, I have my students write term papers, and I've had quite a few students write term papers on the subject of legalization of medical marijuana. Now, what I found so interesting about these papers, I expected that, you know, law students tend to be pretty libertarian generally, and I expected most of them would be saying that it should be made legal. And yet I found that without exception, every paper that a student has submitted to me has come to the conclusion that it should not be made legal for medical purposes. And one of the reasons that students have given in their paper for this are the harmful effects that offset the medical benefits, but also the fact that whatever medical benefits there might be from the use of marijuana, there are other drugs available that are actually cheaper, more effective, and without the undesirable side effects. And so that being the case, without exception, my students have concluded in their papers, and they don't have to, I grade papers that I don't agree with many times and give good grades, but every paper that I've gotten on this issue has concluded that it should not be legalized, and several have said that they began their research expecting that they were going to argue that it should be legalized, but changed their minds as they did their research. Anyway, so this is closely related to the alcohol issue, and it may be the new crusade of the 2020s, but it's something we need to be concerned about. And we'll talk more after the break. Okay. Again, you are listening to Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo, your host. If you have not had a chance to follow uh, some of the previous episodes, I would encourage you to go to lovingliberty.net and simply uh, look under Constitution Classroom. You'll find a complete archive of all of the previous episodes, and you'll find a wealth of information, quite an education awaiting you there as we make our way through the uh, Bill of Rights and uh, to our present point with the 18th and 21st Amendments. We'll be back right after this. Facebook recently announced an update to Instagram DMs by introducing a new Messenger experience in the app. More than a billion people already use Messenger. They are bringing some of the best Messenger features to Instagram. I'm Adam Mosseri. I'm the head of Instagram. I'm excited to talk to you today about some of the new messaging features we've got coming out. One of the features I'm most excited about is the fact that people are going to be able to message across apps. So you're going to be able to message your friends on Facebook from Instagram and vice versa. Now, this isn't going to change who you can message or who you can message you. You're still in complete control of both of those things. In fact, we've even built some new controls that are more granular that allow you to decide who exactly can message you, but you'll be able to manage your messages from one app should you so choose. And we think that's critically important. And we also think it's critically important that people have control over their experience. For more information, please visit the Facebook newsroom at about.fb.com news. 
You've heard me talking about my pillow for three years, folks. It's the truth. I get the best sleep of my life with a my pillow. You can do it too. 60 day money back guarantee, 10 year warranty made in the USA. You'll sleep well or you'll get your money back. Go to mypillow.com, click on the radio listener special, use my promo code USA, get two MyPillow premium pillows for the price of one, or call 1 800 951 8175. Get the best sleep of your life and do it now. Balance of nature is fruits and vegetables in a capsule, changing the world one life at a time. When I first switched over, because I stopped taking the other supplements I was taking and switched over all the way to Balance of Nature, I really noticed a huge difference. It was amazing. Like better sleep, better attention, better energy. It was just really, really great. Balance of Nature is now offering 35% off on any new preferred order. Go to balanceofnature.com today and use discount code USA. When thinking about life insurance, my accident reinforced you never know what tomorrow might bring. That's why I reached out to AccuQuote. AccuQuote helps people find a life insurance policy that meets their needs. Since 1986, they've helped millions of folks save up to 60% on their life insurance by comparing the rates and features of dozens of top-rated life insurance products. A healthy 50-year-old non-smoker can buy a half a million dollars of 10-year level term for less than 45 bucks a month. A 60-year-old under 120 bucks a month. Longer or permanent terms are available. Even if you already own life insurance, you really need to check out my friends at AccuQuote. Don't worry about health issues. Remember, they help me. As a pastor, I'm concerned about your soul and helping you to make sure your family is taken care of. Life insurance is more affordable now than ever, so don't make them wish you'd made that call. 877-437-4781. Call now. 877-437-4781. 877-437-4781. policy points and availability vary by state. Welcome back to Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eitzmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, as uh, as we move forward now, we have uh, landed on the 19th Amendment, kind of a timely one considering the election is uh, drawing close. Exactly, and we already saw the 15th Amendment that said that the right to vote cannot be denied based upon race, color, or previous condition of servitude. But at that time still, generally speaking, the right to vote was for men only. And it should be understood that men were assumed to vote on behalf of their entire families rather than just simply casting their own vote, although single men were entitled to vote too. But in some states, Wyoming and a number of other states, women were already allowed to vote by either state constitution or state statute. But generally speaking, that was not the case. And so we see the 19th Amendment. 19th Amendment is adopted in 19, was it 1919, I believe it is. My mother was 14 years old before the 19th Amendment was adopted. But the 19th Amendment simply says that the right of citizens in the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. They say there are some states in which women were already allowed to vote and hold public office as well. There were a couple of states, I'm thinking Montana might be one of these, in which women could hold public office but could not vote, 
and in which there were women who had been elected to Congress or to the state legislature, but who were not allowed to vote in the election by which they were elected. So up to this time, the matter as to whether women could vote was a matter that could be decided on a state-by-state basis. But with the 19th Amendment, it becomes a federal policy applied in all states that no one can be denied the right to vote based on sex. And so it was thought at that time, too, that women generally being more moral than men on issues you know, like alcohol and other things like this, that this might possibly upgrade the nature of American politics, make politics cleaner, more honest, and so on. Whether it's had that effect, it's hard to say. But at any rate, that became effective then with the 19th Amendment. And then we have the 25th Amendment. Now, the 25th Amendment provides that the right of citizens of the United States who are 18 years of age or older to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of age. And this amendment is adopted, again, I think it's around 1970 or shortly thereafter. But one of the things that people were a little surprised to find was that Young people did not register to vote as diligently as was expected. They didn't take the time to inform themselves as much as people thought they would, and they didn't flock to the polls and vote as much as they thought they would. Voting among 18 to 21-year-olds had always lagged behind the rest of the population, and that apparently continues to be the case. Part of the argument for the 18-year-old right to vote was that we drafted people at age 18. People could enlist in the military at age 18 without parental consent and younger than that with parental consent. And a saying became quite popular that I won't fight if I can't vote or old enough to fight, old enough to vote. Not that those two necessarily go together. The fact that you are capable of fighting doesn't mean that you're capable of voting intelligently or vice versa. Those don't necessarily go together. But young people who were making income could certainly had to pay taxes. And so if they can be taxed, they should be allowed to vote. The argument was and no taxation without representation and so on. But anyway, should add too that prior to this time, a number of states had lowered the voting age to 18. This means that no one can be denied the right to vote on the basis of their age if they are 18 or above. That doesn't mean the universal voting age is now set at 18. In fact, if the state of New York wants to pass a law allowing three-year-olds to vote, they can do that. But it says you can't deny anybody the right to vote based on age if they are at least 18. In other words, the voting age has to be at least 18, but states can lower it if they should choose to do so. Anyway, I haven't seen any drive today, that I know of at least, to lower the voting age below 18, but who knows what could be coming next. Anyway, so the right to vote has become kind of a universal thing now, 
And many see the right to vote as being a right that is very fundamental, the most fundamental of all, because it is by exercising the right to vote that we can vote ourselves other rights and take part in the political process. But some might argue that really the right to vote is a means rather than an end, and that we shouldn't view voting as necessarily a, a end in and of itself, and that maybe voting should be a privilege rather than a right and should be exercised only by those who will exercise the franchise responsibly. In fact, I would make the argument that with all these get-out-the-vote drives, obviously when we have a close election, I'll certainly be urging people to vote if they're going to vote the way I would vote. But generally, just saying vote as you choose, but vote, be sure to vote no matter what, I'm not sure that's a drive that I would generally support. People who don't take the time to inform themselves and vote responsibly shouldn't vote. It is better not to vote at all than to vote irresponsibly and ignorantly. And when I go to vote, particularly in a primary, sometimes, particularly at the local level, there might be candidates on the ballot where, for an office like a commissioner position or something like that where I'm not familiar with these candidates, and consequently, I simply won't vote. It's better to leave that particular spot on the ballot blank than to vote when you don't know what you're doing and casting your vote. And then we have a question that's arisen lately here, and that concerns the right to vote for felons. And there seems to be an increasing drive today to extend the right to vote for, to felons. And when people are incarcerated, generally speaking, under the laws of most states, they lose their right to vote, at least if they're incarcerated for a felony. And when they are released, do they get the right to vote back? Well, in some states, the policy has been that if you lose your, if you are a convicted felon, you have forfeited your right to vote, which again suggests that it is not exactly a fundamental right. If you are a convicted felon, you don't lose your right to free speech, free exercise of religion, the right to own property, other things. But if we're going to say that you lose your right to vote as a convicted felon, that means maybe it isn't as fundamental of right as these others, and maybe it is a right that can be limited to those who have demonstrated that they can exercise that right responsibly. Now, one thing that I look at as I consider this issue is I go back to the Bible as a source for at least the principles as to what is right and wrong in law and government. And while the Bible is not primarily a political textbook, the Bible, when it talks about principles of law and government as it does, it is as inspired as and as infallible on those issues as it is on anything else. Well, what does the Bible say about felons having the right to vote? Well, obviously, it doesn't say anything. However, when you look back to Israel, when a person had committed an offense, when a person pays for that offense, either by making restitution or by serving the period of involuntary servitude or the punishment by lashes, which could not exceed 40, when the person has paid his penalty, the principle that I see under the laws of Israel was that that person 
is then brought back into the community and made a full part of the community once again. And personally, I think that has a lot of merit. And one of the things that I regret a great deal is that today, when a person is convicted of an offense, they are, in many cases, prohibited from going to school to attain certain professions. Persons who've committed certain offenses would not be allowed to sit for the bar exam and be admitted to practice law or other professions like this. And I'm not sure that I agree with that. Anyway, that's something we need to carefully think about is reintegrating former offenders into our process.